arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Far enough, I guess. Where are we? What do you care, long as we're not in jail? Hey! I called you plumbers an hour ago. Now get in the house and fix that leak before it gets any worse. Who told you we're plumbers? How do you like that guy? We're plumbers! Three of the best plumbers that ever plumbed the plumb. <laughs> A Plumbing We Will Go from 1940 is the highest ranked Stooges film on the IMD database. It was the 46th shot that the Stooges did. Matthias Jones has a simple plumbing problem, a leaky washer, but he has no time because he's running a summer baseball camp. He calls twice as nice plumbing to fix the washer. All I can say is, big mistake. But something deadly is about to happen at his baseball camp. Yeah, murder. Let's begin Funeral March for the Maestro and find out who done it. Episode 1 of Funeral March begins now. Funeral March for the Maestro. Matthias Jones series by R.P. Fitton. Copyright 2016 by the Robert P. Fitton Revocable Trust. Chapter 1. When it came to money, Locke held on to the buck like a tough-fisted lieutenant fighting to the death for a chunk of strategic ground. Jones dragged the phone cord tight as Mookie pinged the steel hammer against the exposed copper pipes. I can't hear you, Lark! What are you saying? He stepped onto the gray patio stones and closed the slider door, but the hammering persisted. You're saying Professor Nussbaum owes you money? Oh, calm down. How can I calm down? Ten thousand of my hard-earned dollars have gone down the drain to purchase some, some Steinway. The barrel-chested Mookie opened the slider with his work boot. In the morning sun, his bristly, unshaven cheeks and short, matted haircut gave him the appearance of a criminal just having escaped the penitentiary. His rounded, frog-blue eyes blinked slowly, but his protruding lips never moved when he spoke. You got problems? Mookie, I brought you over here to fix the washers on my kitchen sink. Now you've got the whole wall torn apart, and that brother of yours, my twin brother, he said, raising his index finger. Jones pinched the bridge of his nose as Lark came back on the line. Well, what should I do? Well, you've known Noosebaum for years. He's your big buddy. You knew him when he played piano at weddings. Now he conducts the Prince William Symphony. Can't you reason with him? Reason with him? I want to kill him. He has my money. Well, call LG and take some legal action. Very simple. You got big problems, said Mookie. Will you just hold on, Mookie? Mookie pushed his lips downward and stepped back inside. Touchy, touchy. Arnie said you'd be touchy. Now listen, Lark, I suggest you and Flo get into your car and take a long drive somewhere, cool off, and talk to LG. The ensuing dead air on the line unnerved Jones even more. 
Lark? Hello? Lark? Hello? He closed his eyes and shook his head, and then moved back inside as Mookie banged the pipe again. You got big problems. Well, you said that, said Jones. He went to hang up the phone, but the wall phone now lay on the counter next to the jagged hole in the kitchen wallpaper and plaster. He maneuvered the receiver into place. I hope you guys know what you're doing. Mookie opened his blue eyes wide and tilted his head. He had the annoying habit of pushing air into one cheek, inflating the cheek, and then moving the air into the other cheek. My brother and me, we've been in the business for 20 years. Bisbane plumbing. Twice as nice. What exactly is the problem, said Jones. APS. Jones grabbed his clipboard off the counter. He did not want to arrive late at baseball camp. What's APS? The cellar door opened and an exact replica of Mookie, down to the blue eyes, whiskered cheeks, and scruffy hair, stepped into the kitchen. APS! Everybody knows about APS! Sooner or later, you're gonna get APS! Guys, I'm on the way to my baseball camp. Listen to him, Kooky. His baseball camp. Everybody knows that Arnie Dewitz put up the cash for that camp. Don't remind me, said Jones. Now what is APS? I heard Arnie got Ricky Johnson from the Padres to run the camp, said Mookie. No, I wanted Ricky. I went to school with him. But he couldn't make it because of his schedule. Ah, he dumped you, huh? No, he didn't dump me. Now what's APS? Antiquated plumbing syndrome. Hey, you got bad pipes, Yakima, said Kooky. Real bad, said Mookie. Seeing duplicate copies of both husky guys in their prison-cut peppered hair and pudgy blue eyes pushed his patience. Kooky started pushing the air between his cheeks. So what's the upshot? You're lucky you didn't burst your pipes, said Mookie. Hey, can I have another orange juice? Jones stared at him. Then Kooky moved forward, tracking the dirt from the cellar across the kitchen tiles. Me too, and more cereal. Don't you guys eat breakfast? I have to go. Do whatever you have to do. Just fix the plumbing. What about breakfast? asked Kooky. Help yourself. I'm out of here. I have 25 boys waiting for me at my camp. Ani's camp, said Mookie at the refrigerator. Jones shook his head and grabbed his cell phone off the table and then headed out the front door as the pounding began again. The air had warmed in the morning shadows, cut across the commons, carpeted grass. He took a deep breath and hurried down his brick walkway to his red jeep. A car engine as loud as a passing jet caught his attention beyond the commons' granite post. Lark's long, faded brown bomber ran the stop sign, and his tires skidded as he rounded the main street corner. An oncoming compact's high-pitched horn sounded several times, and the little car veered toward the sidewalk. Lark accelerated past the storefronts, but did not stop at LG's law office. The car tires screeched again against the asphalt at the Hamilton Street traffic lights. Luckily, the lights had changed, but Lark fishtailed, nearly sideswiping a small blue pickup and a yellow Volkswagen parked along the curb. Then he raced down Hamilton Street toward the college. The rapping inside his house continued as Jones attempted to start the Jeep. He had a slight skipping problem until Arnie Dewis had fiddled with the wires yesterday afternoon. The engine backfired and then sputtered out. He set the clipboard on the seat and then pumped the gas pedal. Like a slow sunrise, the engine finally caught and the blue smoke pushed along his fence. 
The jeep threatened to stall along the common as he shifted. He wanted to find Arnie, but the baseball camp was about to begin. Not landing Ricky Johnson was a major disappointment. Ricky was supposed to tell him today whether he was available for a speaking engagement to benefit the Hamilton College athletic programs later in the summer. Jones stopped at the corner and glanced at the Hamilton Street lights. He shook his head at Lark's erratic driving as he brought his jeep up the far side of the common. He also hoped that Lark would not embarrass himself in front of the distinguished maestro, Nussbaum. At the traffic light, the baseball diamond's green grass, dirt infield, and bright white bases were visible beyond the little bowl-shaped football stadium named after Lark. Jones slowed as the light turned green and he cautiously released the clutch through the intersection. Only a few cars moved along Main Street on this quiescent summer morning. His backfiring jeep dipped down the Hamilton Street Hill into the shadows of the towering hemlocks and maples. The road swept by Larson Stadium. Jones put on his blinker for the service road, cutting between the gym and the baseball field's long chain-link fence. The kids were scattered across the grass and smooth infield, and Mac Connors' white Honda was parked along the fence. As coach of St. Pat's, Mac always had opposed him on the athletic field, but while on vacation at a Hamilton Bay cottage, he agreed to help him run the camp for a week. He spotted the hefty Mac, wearing a blue sleeve baseball shirt, up at bat against one of the kids. Jones's grin dropped as his jeep strained along the fence. When he finally stopped and turned off the key near the gate, behind the aluminum bleachers, the engine stayed on and sounded like bubbles in a pot of boiling water. He shook his head, grabbed his clipboard, and stepped outside. The crack of the bat echoed off the brick library walls to the right. A long fly ball went sailing over three kids in right field and bounced up the grassy tree-lined hill to the Shaker-style music conservatory. Jones cupped his hand at the gate. The old duffer still has it! Mac turned to the right and pointed the wooden bat toward the fence. The kid lobbed the ball. Mac swung hard and fell on his knee. He quickly got up and the kid fired another pitch. Again, Mac connected and the arching ball this time cleared the yellow and green 300-foot sign behind the center field chain-link fence. Mac walked up to Jones with a cocky look and handed him the bat. Match that one, big guy. Not bad for an old man, said Jones, looking across the field. Arnie Dewis's blue pickup looped around the library parking lot beyond right field. Maybe you'd like to take a few swings there, Matthias, said Mac, wiping his brow. I have a camp to run, said Jones, smiling. We're lucky we even got this field this morning, said Mac. This idiot comes running on the field screaming about us not having an official permit. No, 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 no. Tell me that didn't happen. Yeah, a mealy-mouthed little guy with glasses and Bermuda shorts. Police shirt. Looked like he was on his way to summer camp. He drove a beat-up little brown car marked Campus Security, said Jones. How did you know? Bucky Driscoll. Well, he threatened to write us up, said Mac. He said we needed written permission to be here. I hope you told him to beat it, said Jones. Well, he wrote this ticket and said the tow trucks were on the way. Jones shook his head. You know, Bucky would get into trouble standing still. Let's round up the boys. He blew his brass whistle. The group converged around the coaches. Arnie Dewey, his cigarette hanging from his mouth, clawed his way over the right field chain link fence. He was stuck for a few seconds before he fell onto the right field grass. When he stood, he picked up his dark rimmed glasses and quickly lit another cigarette. Who the heck is that? 
asked Mac. Ah, the sponsor of this camp. I can still see him bugging Ricky last month at the Colonial House. Jones exhaled. Mac, can you get the boys set up? Mac nodded and Jones trotted to the outfield. Arnie wore a Yankees jersey and waved in a wide arc. Matthias! Arnie, looks like I'm right on time. Time for what? Locke's car now zoomed past Arnie's pickup and continued toward the music conservatory. You look like you could use some help, said Arnie, elbowing Jones in the ribs. Not as young as you used to be, huh? Look, Arnie, we appreciate the funding for the camp. Everybody knows you couldn't raise the dough. That's not true. We had plenty of pledges. Yeah, right. Arnie blew smoke around Jones's face and put out the cigarette. Can't take the smoke, huh? Jones raised his index finger. Look, Arnie, do you know who you're dealing with, Matthias? I played semi-pro ball. You? Jones could not halt Arnie from trekking to the infield. Where did you play semi-pro ball? The Yankees team in Roswell, New Mexico. They reached the infield dirt. Isn't that where all those alien stories started? True stories, said Arnie, exhaling again. Arnie, put out the cigarette. Oh, yeah, he said, throwing it on the dirt. Jones shook his head and snuffed out the cigarette with his sneaker. Hey, Macca! A different sound cracked off the library bricks. Jones looked to the kids passing the baseballs by the third baseline. Then he heard a dog barking inside the open conservatory window past center field. Sounded like a gunshot. You've been on too many of your cases, Matthias. Jones shook his head and turned toward the conservatory. For once, Arnie, I might agree with you. He turned toward the kids. Come on, Arnie, we'll get you a glove. Glove? Nah, I want a few swings, said Arnie as they crossed the infield. Well, let's start with the glove there, hotshot. Jones flipped over the roster page on his clipboard while Arnie pontificated about his playing days. Yeah, I led the league in doubles. Old double dare doers. Double dare? asked Jones, looking up. Yeah, they give me the intentional, said Arnie as he pounded the glove with his closed fist. Yeah, I'd like to give you the intentional. What'd you say, Matthias? I said, let's get this camp going. Jones spun around when a distinct gunshot emanated from the conservatory and the dog barked again. That was a shot. Little nervous about running the camp without Ricky Johnson? Asked Arnie as he poked Jones in the arm. I tell you that was a shot. Jones retreated across the infield and picked up speed once he hit the outfield grass. Bucky Driscoll spun his little car across the library parking lot and disappeared behind the conservatory. Jones broke into a sprint and vaulted the fence like a gymnast in competition. He heard a loud car engine start on the far side of the building as he jaunted up the tree-shaded slope. Locke's clunker raised the dust and careened onto the adjacent athletic fields. What the hell is going on up here? He reached the trees as Locke's car knocked over a soccer goal and scraped the curb onto Hamilton Street. The conservatory windows facing the library were open, but the only entrance was around the parking lot side. As Arnie cackled from the outfield, Jones paralleled the Octagon Building's stone facade, and Lark fishtailed down Hamilton Street toward Route 32. Bucky's compact brown security car, front fender dented, was parked near the conservatory's entrance and the cement walk. Jones leaped up the weathered wood steps under the columns. He ran through the open barnboard doors and up the inside stair treads. Bucky! 
He crossed the quarry tile lobby along the barnboard walls. The outside pane windows were locked. The lower white panel doors to the music hall were also closed. Jones slipped across the red lobby runner, but when he heard barking, he veered toward the main conservatory doors. Bucky's voice was muffled behind the door panels. Identify yourself. It's Matthias Jones. What's going on in there? Who? Matthias! Now Bucky's voice was on a megaphone behind the doors. Clear the area. All personnel will exit the building. Bucky, I'm the only one in the building. Open the door. What's going on in there? After a long silence, Jones pounded on the door. Bucky, I heard gunshots. Oh, it's you, Matthias. The battery is dead on my shortwave. Open up. I can't do that. We have a murder scene here. Jones shook his head and pulled out his cell phone from his back pocket as Arnie Dewars entered the lobby. Hey, Matthias! Do we need the paramedics, Bucky? Who was shot? Said individual has expired. Jones dialed George Strickland's number at the police station. Who? Who's dead? Hamilton. Ned. Ned, get George. He's playing checkers with Wendell. Wendell's lost four in a row. Although sometimes I think George lets him win. Ned, there's been a murder. Phone dropped, rattling Jones's ear. Arnie lit a cigarette as he approached. Arnie, stay at the outside door and don't let anyone inside. What's the matter, you little shaky? No, I'm not shaky. I'm trying to get inside, but Bucky won't let me in. I'll get you in. Strickland came on the line. Matthias, what happened? Somebody's been shot up here in the conservatory, said Jones, as Arnie gripped the brass doorknob. Arnie, this is a crime scene. What? He asked and pulled open the door. Hey, Buckster, what happened, buddy? Bucky assumed a firing position and aimed at Arnie. Get back, A.D. What's going on up there? Asked Strickland. A brisk air current through the open side windows cooled Jones's arms as he moved alongside Arnie. Professor Nussbaum's white hair flowed over the grainy floorboards inside the conservatory. His arm was cuddled over a cello and the drawstring was two feet away near the gray panel wall and closed window panes. A blood splotch radiated outward from a tiny bullet hole in the center of his pale green shirt. Around four feet diagonally from the wall, a snub-nosed handgun with a black handle and a chamber, surrounded by a silver or an aluminum frame, lay on the wood. Nussbaum's German shepherd watched Jones's every move from a position between Nussbaum and the glossy black piano. Jones remembered Nussbaum playing frisbee with his daughter and the dog on the common. George, the maestro, Professor Nussbaum, he sure as hell looks dead. I'm on my way. Wait, George, Lark was in here and just cut across the fields in his car toward Prince William. Lark? Yeah, Lark. I'll talk to you when I get up there. Jones cut the line. Bucky was still in firing position. Everybody outside! Chill out, will you, Bucky? Is he really dead? Said victim has been immobilized. But is he dead? Lark was in here, said Jones. Can't believe Lark would actually shoot anybody. Get in the corridor, or I'll hold you in criminal contempt. Shut up, said Jones, walking by Bucky. Yeah, Buckster, shut up. The dog reared up and showed his teeth. Jones stayed a few dozen feet back. Okay, boy, good dog, good dogs. Hey, I know about dogs, said Arnie. I would stay back, Arnie. He's not going to let you near his fallen master. What are you, afraid of the dog? Asked Arnie, laughing as he traipsed forward. 
The dog lunged, frothing at the mouth, and with a vicious growl, snapped his sharp canines at Arnie. Arnie quickly scampered toward the orchestra's surrounding rehearsal room. That dog is nuts! Back at the door, Bucky zigzagged yellow crime scene tape across the door jam. How is George Strickland supposed to get in here? We don't need the blue boys. This is a campus security investigation. No, it isn't. Jones panned the terraced orchestra rim back to Nussbaum, the cello, and the gun. The piano keys were exposed, but the rear of the piano was closed. From behind, Jones felt the breezes from the library's side shadows again, yet the windows behind Nussbaum were locked. Why kill him and leave the gun? Well, Larson wimped out. The ex-coach is guilty of murder, said Bucky. He unclipped his belt radio and banged it against a chair near the door. Stupid battery. Did you see Larkin here? Did anyone see Larkin here? Bucky flipped his notepad. Said vehicle departed the area via the athletic fields at 8.06 a.m. Bucky, it's 9.15. Bucky looked at his humongous sports watch. He pushed a few of the pointed orange buttons, producing a number of tones, including a Westminster chime. Correction, time adjusted for daylight savings. Don't you even change the time in April? I never believed in daylight savings, he said, hitting the radio with the butt of his hand. The speaker crackled. Chief Strickland! Chief Strickland! I'm right here, Bucky, said Strickland over the radio. Through the closed windows, Jones saw the cruiser outside in the conservatory parking lot. I have a 965 in the college's music conservatory. Why don't you start by getting the damn tape off this door? Strickland and two younger cops were in the lobby. The cops chopped away the tape and moved into the conservatory. Wendell is headed up Route 32. Good. Larson just killed the maestro. BWPD is coming the other way. Arnie squatted down, snapped his fingers, and tried to talk to the dog. Again, the dog's body tensed and lunged at Arnie. Arnie backtracked and hid behind Jones. Crazy mutt! What's that dog doing in here? asked Strickland. Jones stared at the gun. It's Nussbaum's dog. It's a killer dog, said Arnie, now standing with Bucky near the broken tape at the door. Bucky, did you see Lark in here? Negative. Suspect left in a 1978 Buick Electra. Strickland peered out the library side windows. Anybody else in the area that might have crawled out this window? Negative. Strickland continued to look outside. Then you really didn't see anyone in here. Negative. What? Asked Strickland as he turned and winced. Affirmative. Did you or did you not see anyone inside the conservatory? The crime scene was vacant, except for the stiff. Strickland rolled his eyes. All right, boys, get to work. What do you want me to do? Asked Bucky. Get the hell out of here. I'm campus security. Then go keep the campus secure, said Strickland, looking at Jones near the gun. Clayton and the rest of the medical examiner's people will be here within the hour. Strickland creased his brow and turned toward the piano. Shot in the back once at close range. I wonder who the hell owns that gun. I'll trace it, said Bucky with his arms crossed. I thought I told you to beat it, Bucky, said Strickland. Bucky grimaced and spun around. I'm filing an official letter of protest with Nigel Kent. You do that, said Strickland as Bucky waved his arms and tripped over the broken crime scene tape. Strickland put his hands on his hips and stared at Arnie. I'm going, I'm going. That dog is dangerous. Arnie joined Bucky in the hallway. As both men moved away, Strickland faced Jones. 
Why are you here so fast, Matthias? I was out at my baseball camp. I heard a shot, but there was a long pause between the first and the second shot, maybe a minute. Well, that's odd, unless the killer checked Newsbaum's body and then made sure he was dead. Strickland bent over Newsbaum. I only see one hit from the rear, and that's it. Jones put his hand on Strickland's shoulder. You know, we're talking about Lark, George. Strickland shook his head as he stood. Lark has trouble remembering what day it is. You don't understand. Newsbaum old Lark money, 10000 bucks. Strickland's expression soured. Lark is cheap with the buck, but to say that he killed Newsbaum, you don't understand. I just talked to him no more than a half an hour ago. Newsbaum refused to pay back the loan right now. Lark asked him for money, and he said, what's your hurry? Does Lark own a gun? I doubt it, replied Jones, looking at Newsbaum. The dog stretched out again and placed his head on his front paws. Lark really killed him. It's the dumbest executed murder I've ever seen in my life. Well, that has all the ear markings of Lark, as far as that goes, said Jones. Well, Wendell or the Prince William boys will track down Lark before he crosses the notch. Lark is a tower of jelly. He'll tell us everything we need to know. Chapter 2 Outside the conservatory's stone walls, Nigel Kent repeatedly told the reporters the college would defer all questions to Herbert Lane. The district attorney had just arrived, minus his toupee from his bay cottage. Lane put his hand in his pocket and stepped to the microphones. His tan bald head was oversized on the TV monitors. His belly bulged through his sports shirt, making his pale legs seem even scrawnier. To his left, two orderlies from the medical examiner's office containing the late maestro Nussbaum to the waiting van. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, preliminary and quite cursory inspection would indicate Professor J. Arnold Nussbaum was shot once in the back from a relatively close distance. It would appear that Professor Nussbaum was killed instantly, possibly by a direct bullet track through the heart. But I must state this is all preliminary and Dr. Morris will have a more detailed statement after a complete autopsy. Is it true that a former Hamilton College coach was seen fleeing from the scene? Asked one of the reporters. Nigel's eyes opened wide behind his thick glasses. Lane shook his finger. Now, you people should know it would not be appropriate for me to comment on an ongoing investigation. Strickland spoke with two of his officers near the blue-and-white Hamilton cruiser. Jones sidestepped away from Lane's press conference. What's up, George? They have Lark. Well, good. But there is a complication, said Strickland, pinching the bridge of his nose. What do you mean? Tell him, Rick. The blonde-haired cop pressed his lips and faced Jones. Coach Larson got on the interstate in Prince William. Oh, boy, I can see this one coming, said Jones. Got on the wrong way, said the other cop. But they got him, right? asked Jones. Not until he had caused a 35-car pileup in downtown Prince William, said Strickland, opening his eyes. Oh, great. Is he all right? Oh, of course he's all right. Not a scratch. You have 25 people injured, mostly minor injuries. Strickland again pinched his nose. 35 cars, dented and mangled, ruined. At least Locke's bomber can finally go to the junkyard, said Jones. Strickland opened his eyes. No, that's just it. A few minor dents. Lark and the bomber, both unscathed. 
Jones grinned. What's so funny? Nothing, nothing. You say Wendell is bringing them back now. Well, they should be here in a few minutes. Jones moved by the other cops. George, you really don't think Locke had anything to do with killing Nussbaum, do you? Doesn't matter what I think. Herbert is running this investigation. I thought Bucky was. Oh, don't get smart. Strickland's face tensed. I had to send a man over to Nussbaum's house. Why? Well, Bucky was there trying to question Mrs. Nussbaum and the daughter. He just starts in about the murder and these poor people they didn't even know Nussbaum was dead. Herbert was livid, and I don't blame him. He had Bucky alone in my office for five minutes. Bucky slithered down the back corridor. Who else would want Nussbaum dead? asked Jones. Rick tightened his brow. The son-in-law, Steve Corbett, is a janitor here on campus. I guess we'll have to check with all the family members, even the Prince William Symphony members. I know who Corbett is, said Jones. Herbert's guy, Roland Chance, is on his way over. Oh, Roland the Great. Mayor Picard put him in the DA's office. The man has an ego the size of the Crosstown Bridge in Prince William. Strickland wrote something on his pad. Well, Corbett needs to be found. And Nussbaum's wife and his daughter. He stroked his chin. Flo is going to be hysterical when she hears that Locke is under suspicion of killing Nussbaum. Better get her a sedative, said Jones. Make it a double, one for her and one for Lark. Another one of Strickland's men hurried down the conservatory steps. What have you got, Tully? Gray-haired cop older than Strickland took in a deep breath and spoke in a low voice out of the corner of his mouth as the car and his van pulled across the athletic fields. I just talked with one of the other music professors, the uh, maestro. He was very close to this Lenore Picotta. Mayor Picotta's wife? asked Strickland. She attends all the major social functions. Lenore Picotta is a patron of the arts in Prince William, added Jones. She attends all the major social functions. Tully checked his notes. She's the um, president of the Prince William Symphony. Where was she when Nussbaum was shot? asked Jones. He watched the green medical examiner's van turn toward Prince William. I don't know. Uh, Mick Dumas said she worked closely with Nussbaum, said Tully. Mick Dumas? asked Strickland. Yeah, the Mick Dumas Quartet plays to the uh, older crowd on Wednesday nights at Club Max in Prince William. And he's in the music department here at the college, said Jones. Coco Stefani wanted to get a different crowd in on the weeknights. I heard them. They're not bad. Okay, said Strickland. I'm sure Herbert knows about the Mrs. Picotta link to Nussbaum. Find out where she was during the last hour, and Rick, find this Corbett janitor. Well, Steve Corbett, not a bad guy. Good-looking guy. A little slow, and I don't mean that in a bad way, said Jones. He gets the gym ready before the basketball games. Right. Question Corbett, Rick, and get back to me. We'll see if Roland Chance needs to talk to him. Rick nodded. We can check the uh, custodian's office at the physical plant. Jones looked Strickland in the eye. What bothers me, George, is the timing. The minute be... That minute between the short, the minute between the shots, I heard it myself. Well, then where's the other bullet, Matthias? Good question. Gun test will show what I heard. Jones turned as the short, floppy-haired Mick Dumas, wearing a red sports shirt, walked briskly under the walkway bricks, under the trees surrounding the conservatory. He had a large jaw, big blue eyes, and a toothpick was stuck between his teeth. Ah, there's Mick. I recognize him from Club Max. 
Dumas's blue eyes were bloodshot as he jogged forward. What are they telling me, that Arnold is dead? Yes, he was shot in the back, said Strickland. He extended his hand. I'm George Strickland. I don't believe we've met. Mick Dumas, he said, slowly shaking, surely shaking Strickland's hand. God, this is awful. Who did it? The investigation is underway. Sure, sure. I just can't believe it. His watery eyes swung toward Jones. Coach Jones. Hello, Mick. I've known Arnold for five years, a wonderful cellist, perfectionist. Well, who would want him dead? asked Jones. Mick raised his bushy brows and wiped the sweat away from his blue handkerchief. Then he shook his head. <laughs> Arnold Nussbaum had no enemies. Everybody has enemies if they exist in this world, said Jones. Like I say, he was a perfectionist and a big spender, but I don't know anyone who hated him or had anything against him. You've worked with him for five years. I have, but I've accepted a new position with a school in Santa Fe now that I've sold my house in Newtown. Oh, you live over the bridge? Yeah, I live on the other side of the Crosstown Bridge. Great view if you like Prince William. I didn't get the position I wanted, but I'm not complaining. Jones folded his arms as Strickland as Strickland slid in the cruiser and spoke to the radio. Why are you leaving, Mick? Sometimes it's best just to get back to your roots. I left New Mexico years ago when I got out of the service. I'm not getting any younger, he said, squeezing Jones's arm. They say you can't go back, coach, but I'm going to prove that you can. I just hate to be leaving, you know, with Arnold dead. One more gig next Wednesday, and then I'm flying out of Manchester on Saturday morning. Well, I'll catch the show. Thanks, thanks. Please tell me if you find out anything. Mick glanced at Strickland inside the cruiser and then started back along the walk. Jones wanted to talk to him further. Working with Nussbaum for five years might shed some light and insight into the maestro's friends and associates. Strickland set the radio microphone back on the dash. Wendell just crossed over the notch. He and Locke will be at the station in five minutes. You want some coffee and sandwiches? No, get me the sedative. I guess Lark is a basket case. Chapter 3 I'm doomed! Doomed, I tell you! said Lark, his face red as he removed his glasses inside the crowded jail cell. Strickland squeezed between Rick and Jones. He loosened the top button of his sweaty uniform. Listen, Lark, Herbert Lane is sending... Herbert Lane? Oh my God, I am doomed! Herbert is sending one of his people to speak with you. Yes, and pressure a confession. I won't stand for it. I won't, shouted Lark. He stood quickly and put on his glasses. Where is Flo? You said Flo was on her way over here. Jones cleared his throat. I guess she had to stop off at the bridge club. I'm being charged with murder and she's off playing cards. No, no, said Jones. She said that she was getting Sid's number, whatever that means. Oh, thank the Lord. Lark, said Strickland, you need to answer Mr. Chance's questions honestly and completely. Is there anything you want to tell me about what happened this morning? And I've told you ten times you need a lawyer down here. Lark sat on the bed again and leaned his head against the green plaster wall. I have to tell you. Okay, tell me, said Strickland. I'm doomed! Doomed! Strickland rolled his eyes at Jones and motioned him outside. He walked Jones down the corridor toward the outside offices. We're getting nowhere. Why won't he just tell us what happened? Because, answered Jones. Because what? Because he's doomed! Doomed! Oh, don't you start, said Strickland. 
This is no laughing matter, Matthias. A man was shot to death this morning on campus. I've already got a call from Hamilton Fletcher telling me to keep this hush-hush. You know how he is about the college. Well, I work for the town, not Hamilton Fletcher. Same thing. They moved into the main office. Wendell leaned against the counter, legs outstretched and hands folded. He spoke to a middle-aged woman with an olive complexion and styled black hair. Her eyes were moist and lined with green mascara. She wore new jeans and a pink jersey with bold black letters. Summer Concert Fest. That's Mrs. Picotta, said Strickland. Wendell's monkey laugh filled the room. <laughs> well, we keep busy around here. <laughs> well, that's a change, said Strickland. Can I help you, Mrs. Picotta? With a saddened countenance, she slowly peered over Wendell's shoulder. As she meandered around Wendell, he caught the metal wastebasket with his shoe and sent the contents across the wood floor. Her dark eyes were glazed, perhaps drugged. She smiled a subtle smile at Jones and then extended her little hand to Strickland. Even her voice was mellow. Chief Strickland, I've worked with Maestro Nussbaum at the symphony. Were you called to the station, Mrs. Picotta? asked Strickland. No, sir, I was not. I've come down here on my own volition to see if I can be of assistance in finding the truth about dear Arnold's death. And what do you think the truth is, Mrs. Picotta? She wrinkled her pink frosted lips. I assume that someone shot him to death. Who? asked Jones. Well, I do not know who would be capable of murdering such a... a... Her eyes filled and she turned away. She raised her dark trim brows as she wiped the tears off her cheeks. Is this an official investigation? Do I need a lawyer? Why would you need legal representation, Mrs. Picotta? asked Jones. Her eyes tightened. I don't know who would want Arnold dead. Maybe his son-in-law. Why the son-in-law? asked Strickland as Wendell, holding the wastebasket, moved past Mrs. Picotta. Oh, everyone knows that Steve Corbett and Arnold hated each other. What brought that about? asked Jones. You need a ride anywhere, Eleanor? <laughs> asked Wendell. No, I have my Jaguar. Wow, a Jag. Wendell. See if Lark needs anything out back, said Strickland. Sure, George, sure. Goodbye, Lenore. You take care, Wendell. Wendell moved by, still carrying the wastebasket. He set it near the counter, glanced toward Mrs. Picotta, and then headed toward the jail cells. Steve Corbett was a lieutenant colonel in the Marines. Maybe you're thinking of another Steve Corbett. Jones furrowed his brow. Steve Corbett is a custodian here at the college. Yes, he had a promising career. What happened? asked Strickland. Munitions accident at Camp Pendleton in California during maneuvers. Roland Chance in an open silk shirt with an exposed thin gold chain against his tanned skin stepped inside the station. His hair was moosed heavily as if he had just stepped from the shower. Mrs. Picotta studied Chance and the three men in suits accompanying him into the station. Then she looked back at Strickland. Head injury. He was never the same. Lenore, why are you here? asked Chance. I wanted to see if I could help. Chance's snooty voice was aggravating, as was his cologne. Where is, uh, Larson? He's out back. His brown eyes caught Jones, but he faced Mrs. Picotta. Lenore, you need to return to the uh, mayor's mansion. 
But Arnold is dead. He's dead. Chance motioned to one of his men. John, uh, bring Mrs. Picotta out to her car. Yes, Mr. Chance. Mrs. Picotta moved up to Strickland and Jones. She blinked her droopy eyes as she spoke in a shaky voice. Well, we have suffered a great loss. I understand your feelings, said Strickland. Find Arnold's killer. We will attempt just that, said Chance. He turned to Strickland as Mrs. Picotta was brought outside. Herbert was livid, George, when you didn't keep the TV people away while he wasn't wearing his hairpiece. The Prince William stations all broadcast his statement. About the hairpiece? asked Jones with a smile. Always with the quip, Jones. I'm sure I echo Herbert in the mayor's sentiments when I ask you to stay the hell out of this investigation. We don't need any trouble, said Chance, adjusting his collar. He looked quite pleased with himself. A lark is out back and knows you're coming. Herbert may want him transferred to a more secure area like the county jail. Lark isn't exactly an escape artist, said Jones. Well, our office has learned that he lent Professor Newsbaum $10,000. It was laughed at several times when he demanded the money. And I may point out, he was in the music hall conservatory. Larson was inside when the fatal shots were fired. Jones stepped closer to Chance and looked him in the eye. Lark, no matter how stingy he is, wouldn't commit murder. I don't even think he could fire a gun. Well, we'll see. Chance motioned his head and the three men followed him into the back corridor. Where is his lawyer? Refuse his representation, said Strickland. Oh, good. Good work, George. He pressed his lips and marched down the hallway. He's a wonder, said Jones. I'll let him do his thing, said Strickland. Mrs. Picotta stepped back inside the station. She carried a little white poodle. Mrs. Picotta, I think you better go back to Prince William. I have to reiterate, Steve Corbett and the maestro never got along. He was the son-in-law who never lived up to Arnold's stature. Jones looked down the corridor where Chance was questioning Lark. Well, how long ago was he injured? Eight years ago. Bernice moved to Hamilton five years ago, and Arnold got Steve the job at the school. Bernice is the daughter? asked Strickland. Correct. Steve and Arnold never were of the same ilk, anyway. But at least Steve had a career in the military and money coming in. Once Steve was back here, the differences between the two men exacerbated. We need to talk with him, George, and see where he was at the time of the murder. He turned toward Mrs. Picotta. What about the wife and Bernice? Loyal and adoring, Bernice worshipped the ground her father walked on. So Steve was a letdown to her, asked Strickland. Sure, even before the accident. Confidentially, I think he liked the women. And gentlemen, you can check the medical records. He was on medication and subject to violent fits. How violent? asked Jones. Assault! Back in California. But the medication has never been effective since they came back here. Arnold told me all this. I knew the man for 11 years. I see, said Strickland. Should I call you tonight at the mayor's mansion? She opened her pocketbook and retrieved her white Prince William Symphony card with Ray's maroon lettering. The Prince William Symphony, 413 South Bay Ave, Prince William, New Hampshire. 
Lenore Picotta, President, 603-555-1212. All right, good, said Strickland. You can reach me on my cell phone. She handed the card to Strickland. Thank you for your help, Mrs. Picotta, said Strickland. I want the truth to come out. We all do. She nodded and left via the front screen door. A high-pitched door lock sounded, and she opened a red, shiny Jaguar's driver's door. Strickland pivoted to his side office, and Jones followed. I find her a presence here, George. Suspicious. Well, she's grieving. No, no, no. She's too cooperative. Oh, Matthias, what other motive would she have for coming in here? Well, it sounds like she came over here to nail Steve Corbett. Strickland shuffled through the papers. I'm calling him in, but it's irrelevant if Locke fired the gun. Oh, come on, George. Strickland's dark eyes moved slowly upward from the papers. Now that you mention it, why would she finger Corbett like that? He picked up the phone and punched in a few numbers and rolled his tongue around his cheek. Yes, Brenda, this is George Strickland. Would you get me maintenance? Jones retreated to the window behind Strickland's desk. Arnie Dewars and Bucky Driscoll waltzed down from School Street. Oh, no. What's the matter now? asked Strickland. Bucky and Arnie, he said, peering outside. Coming over here. Well, shut the door, Matthias. Strickland lifted the phone closer to his ear. Yes, this is George Strickland. I'm trying to get in contact with Steve Corbett. Oh, hi, Dan. He what? I see. Well, where was he this morning? Yes, I'll wait. Jones pushed the door shut but listened near the wood panels. Arnie's oh, voice grew louder as the station screen door he slammed. He asked Ned if he could speak with Strickland. He was there. He wants to speak with Strickland. Yeah, just get me the chief, will you? He wants you, George. Well, tell him to go play in traffic, said Strickland, placing his hand over the mouthpiece. Corbett went home after he heard the news of Noosebaum's death. Well, that's not surprising, said Jones. Outside, Bucky instructed Arnie to enter Strickland's office. Just go in there. Just go in there, Arnie. Yes? He was working in the library this morning? Asked Strickland, looking up at Jones. Right next to the conservatory, said Jones. A loud rap on the door startled him. Hey, Georgie, it's Arnie Dewars. And security officer Driscoll, said Bucky. Jones rolled his eyes. Oh, boy. Strickland gripped the phone and slouched as he spoke. Yes, I understand, Dan. He reports to work at 8. Okay, good. No, no, I'll call him. Just some preliminary questions. What? Is who going to fry? Come on, Dan, we're talking about Lark. He hung up the phone. Some people just don't know when to shut up. This time, both men knocked on the wood panel door. Georgie, I have important news. What do you want me to do, asked Jones. Oh, let him in. Get it over with. Jones raised his brows and turned toward the lock. You'll regret it. I know that. When Jones twisted the knob, Bucky fell forward and stumbled into the office. Arnie exhaled cigarette smoke and trailed behind. Georgie, I have this whole thing under control. Arnie, you can't smoke in here, said Strickland. Gee, I told you that, A.D., said Bucky, placing both hands on his gun belt. Regulation 16.5 of the town council ordinances. 16.5 is a restaurant closing ordinance, said Strickland. Hey, Georgie said Arnie, putting out the cigarette and a coffee mug on Strickland's desk. I've solved the murder. Really? asked Strickland, evidencing a grin at Jones. Yeah, we both came up with this, said Bucky. His eyelids sunk and his lower teeth stuck out as he spoke. Using a ballistic and crime scene evidence. 
Well, ballistics aren't back yet, said Strickland. Hey, said Arnie, moving face to face with Strickland. That dog was right there when the music man was plugged. You're saying we have our first witness. That ain't it. Come on, Arnie, I'm a busy man, said Strickland. Arnie held his glasses and cleared his throat. I'm telling you, the dog shot the professor. Jones burst into a laugh and fell backward on the couch across from Strickland. The dog killed Nussbaum. That's a good one, Arnie. Real original. Bucky moved closer to Jones and pointed his finger. Said dog was in close proximity of the deceased. Even Strickland's eyes were moist and he seemed as if he were going to laugh. You're saying the dog fired the gun. Well, what a clever dog. I figure the dog hated the old man, said Arnie. Well, how do you figure that, Arnie? asked Jones, wiping his eye. The dog in question was left stateside while his master was in Europe, said Bucky. Animals sense things, said Arnie. They ain't stupid. Well, that's an interesting theory. Gentlemen, said Strickland, now if you'll excuse me, I have to check on our lead suspect. Yeah, well, Locke was framed. Oh, yeah, by whom? asked Jones, and then he giggled. The dog? Ah, yeah, you laugh, Matthias. You better get your own house in order. What do you mean? Mookie says they've got most of the water out of your house now. What water? asked Jones, looking at Strickland. Strickland grinned again. Twice as nice. Chapter 4 The propane heaters blasted warm air over the elongated floor puddles, bringing out a moldy smell from the stone foundation. Kuki yelled something upstairs to Mookie as the blowtorch's blue flame flared into the darkness near the bulkhead's wood stairs. Jones cupped his hands. Don't you think you should shut off that torch, Kuki? I'm Mookie. Mookie? Kookie? Who cares? You're going to burn down my house. Mookie shook his head and rolled his eyes. Arnie keeps saying you're touchy. Jones stared at him and then crossed the cellar puddles. Mookie twisted the brass torch knob and the flame went out with a pop. How did you break that pipe anyway? I didn't do it. Kookie did it. I don't care who did it. Then why'd you ask? Asked Mookie. And you had a call from Courtney Jefferson. Jones grit his teeth. How did the pipe burst? I told you. You had APS. The pipe was old. Funny it broke just when you guys showed up. Mookie lit up a cigar stub from his back pocket. Hey, I heard somebody knocked off that conductor. Yeah, that's correct, said Jones, heading for the stairs. And Locke Lawson did it. But we don't know that. Listen, will you guys get this system up to speed? Mookie exhaled and looked up to Kookie at the top of the stairs. Hey, Kookie! Hey! When will we be out of here? Maybe 15 minutes. The phone rang and Jones trotted up the cellar stairs. The pipes are still exposed in the kitchen. Yeah, so what? So what? The phone rang and he picked up the wall phone off the counter. You incompetent boob. I beg your pardon, said Nigel Kent on the other end. Nigel, no, my wall is ripped and there are puddles and propane. Matthias, what are you talking about? Jones looked at the wall and then back at Kooky. The plumber quickly tilted his head up and headed down the stairs. I have plumbing problems. Real Plumbing problems, said Jones. Mookie and Kookie argued downstairs. Just don't hire those men from twice as nice plumbing. Hamilton Fletcher threw them off the estate. Oh, great. I'm calling to check on Locke's 
condition. What do you mean his condition? asked Jones. Well, well, haven't you heard? Lark was rushed to Prince William Hospital with chest pains. Jones spun toward the stairs. No, nobody told me that. Apparently the grilling by Herbert Lane's man was overwhelming. Jones closed his eyes for a second. Lark should never have lent that money to Dr. Nussbaum. Hamilton Fletcher is having a statement drafted by his lawyer to smooth things over for the college. Nigel lowered his voice to a whisper. Do you think Lark was responsible for Professor Nussbaum's death? He was seen there when the shots were fired. I don't know, Nigel. There are other people who need to be questioned. He said as the Bisbane brothers both emerged into the kitchen. Hey, where are you guys going? Going dirt biking, said Kooky, but Jones was not sure whether he was Mookie. But it's only 2.30. Hey, we gotta race the boys from the Prince William slush buggers over the weekend. Matthias, are you there? Yes, Nigel, he said as the Bisbanes stomped their muddy boots down his front hall floorboards. I'll call George about Locke right now. Please, keep me advised. Jones hung up the phone as his front door closed. He lifted his cell phone and his Jeep keys off the hall stand. Then he glanced at the silver-framed black-and-white picture of himself, Lark, and Nigel at the annual athletic dinner last June. Lark's teeth and glasses glistened, and a tuxedoed Nigel looked directly at the camera. Jones pressed his lips and headed outside. The huge white cube truck spewed a stinky blue gas trail along his white picket fence. Jones hurried through the gate and he coughed as he slid into the jeep and started the engine. Ahead, the truck lurched and the tools tumbled between two dirt bikes strapped to either side of the wall. Jones pushed Strickland's cell phone number and studied the bright green letters on the side of the truck going by him. Twice as nice plumbing. Strickland. George, what happened? Well, it's Lark. He's in the ER. I'm out in front of the medical center right now. Jones pictured the huge hospital in Prince William. Just what happened inside that jail cell? Roland says the questioning was routine, but Wendell tells me he was screaming at Locke and trying to get a confession. This went on for 20 minutes. I was trying to find Steve Corbett. Nobody has seen him. I talked to Tully. He says Bernice and Helga Nussbaum have strong alibis. Well, I'm heading over to Prince William right now. The Bisbane truck brake squeaked at the corner. A piece of copper pipe shot out the back and under the road around the common. Jones quickly veered to his left. Moron. Look, Locke may have his character flaws, but... No, Mookie and Kooky. Strickland chuckled as an ambulance's siren grew louder in the background. Listen, Roland ought to tone it down. If anything happens to Locke... I've already had it out with Herbert, and Roland is now incognito. Dan Turley at the physical plant has a maintenance guy who saw Corbett run into the parking lot at 9.10 and then drive away like a bat out of hell. Well, that's interesting. He needs to be questioned, George. Strickland said something away from the phone and then came over clearly. Flo just ran into the lobby. She looks frantic. <laughs> More than usual? I'm going back inside. Check in with me later. I'll be over there. The cube truck finally turned left and headed around the common. More pipes slammed against the side of the truck. I think I'll be over there. Jim, I didn't think you knew him that well, said Jones into his cell phone. Gallagher spoke as if he were starting Sunday morning's homily. Matthias, I'm a priest, but that doesn't mean I can't have fun. 
I had Arnold, Helga, and Bernice over many times for a symphony performance. It's beyond belief that he's gone. And Bernice tells me he is to be cremated with no service as per his instructions. Doesn't give people a chance to mourn. But you're trying to find out who did it. I understand that. What about Steve Corbett? asked Jones. The Bisbane truck chugged up the rock ledge at 35 miles an hour, spewing dense blue smoke over Route 32. Oh, the husband, yes. I saw him a few times at Symphony Hall, but uh, he never accompanied the rest of them. He had some kind of disability, according to Bernice. I admired Arnold very much. He enjoyed the better things in life. Apparently so. I want to know why Lark Larson would kill him said Gallagher. Well, I'm not sure that he did. We can talk once I get back from the hospital, but then again, I'm not sure that he didn't. Well, I'll be here. Thanks, Jim. Jones was tempted to beep the horn at the Bisbanes. In the side mirror, a yellow Volkswagen moved closer. The car, scratched on the side door, windows tinted, zipped into the opposite lane and flew by Jones. Seconds later, it crossed the solid center line and soared past the cube truck. Jones pumped the brakes and faded back as the Volkswagen disappeared around the truck. Under normal circumstances, Locke would not have shot Newsbaum. Money made Locke crazy, especially when he parted with it. Jones could accept the one-time possibility of Locke snapping when Newsbaum once again refused to pay back such a substantial sum, but he never knew Locke to own a gun or even know how to shoot one. The Bisbane cube truck, without signaling, suddenly shot left onto the shoulder above the quarries. A horn blared and a green van skidded in the other lane. The woman in the other car communicated her astonishment with a few appropriately timed finger gestures. He doubted if the Bisbanes were even aware of her anger as the truck bounded down the sloping rough road along the quarries. Jones's thoughts returned to the murder and he worried about whether Roland's badgering had put Lark's life in jeopardy. Jones has no explanation to clear former coach Lark Larson, who was at the murder scene and fled. Lark has a clear motive because Professor Nussbaum owed the chief Lark money for purchasing a Steinway piano. And the last person that you'd want on a murder scene, Bucky Driscoll, is creating havoc right away. Nussbaum's dog barks frantically as his master lay dead on the conservatory floor. Other people may be involved. Lenore Picotta, the mayor's wife, patron of the arts. A weird guy named Steve Corbett, and Mick Dumas was a professional musician with a music trio. All with Arnie and Bucky pushing the theory that the dog killed the professor. Okay, join me next time as Jones's house becomes a disaster and Jones digs deeper to find the killer of Professor Newsbaum. Poor Jones, he has APS. Episode 2, same time, same station. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.